The preaching of God's Word is found in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11. We read in Exodus 24 of a meal of fellowship with none less than God. And here as we anticipate in the Lord's mercies next week of assembling to enjoy the Lord's Supper, (coughs) we turn our attention to that truth. And we do so by looking at 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Here then the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He brake it and said, Take, eat, this is My body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of Me. After the same manner also He took the cup when He had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in My blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. These few verses for our attention this afternoon, as by the Lord's grace we hope to begin our preparing for the Lord's Supper. And as we do so, we take up a passage, doubtlessly familiar to us, but in context which was set forth to correct a variety of of errors. And so in Corinth, you'll notice as Paul mentions earlier, that they were gathering, and yet though they were saying we're gathering and observing the Lord's Supper, Paul says in verse 20, when ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. And he points out their abuses. Everyone's greedy, having turned this spiritual meal, albeit uh, with ordinances that are outward, into a physical feast, they had made it to satisfy their earthly and carnal desires. And so he points out, verse 21, In eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. One is hungry and another is drunken. You see, they had turned this spiritual feast that makes use of bread and wine into nothing more than a carnal feast. And if you at all are in any way aware of what's going on in the Reformed world, you'll realize that the Reformed world is largely approaching that view of the Lord's Supper today. And so in certain circles, the Lord's Supper, which is a simple and symbolic spiritual sacrament, becomes nothing other than an earthly feast. And so it's all about how good the bread is and how big of a meal it is and so on. And Feasting becomes this important feature of so-called Reformed spirituality. Well, though with more abuses, that was what took place in Corinth. They had turned the simplicity of the sacrament into something other than what it was. A mere physical feast. And brethren, you'll notice how Paul corrects this, and God through Paul corrects it, He does so by reminding the Corinthians and us as well what the Lord's Supper is and what it holds forth. And you'll see as well if you read beyond that there are great dangers in neglecting this. Verse 29, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation, that is judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, that is, are dead. This is a solemn thing. And yet, as solemn a thing as it is with reference to the warnings and the abuses that can stem from a misunderstanding and abuse of the supper, it is also a rich blessing. And the rich blessing is found in rightly observing, understanding, and partaking of the Lord's Supper. And brethren, we should realize that these things are needed for us. We need to realize that the Lord's Supper can be abused through our ignorance, through our false understandings, through our carnality and earthly hearts. But we can also neglect the great riches that are held forth to us in the Supper. And in simplicity, we can say the best way of thinking of the Lord's Supper is by thinking of the Lord and His Supper. That it is the Lord's Supper. It is His. It is of Him. It is holding Him forth. And it is for His people. And so in preparation, we wish to think upon the Lord's Supper by looking at three things from our text. Firstly, looking at the Lord regarding its founding. Secondly, looking at the Lord and His Supper regarding its provision. And thirdly, looking at the Lord and His Supper and its hope, and how each of these hold forth Christ to us. So, its founding, its provision, and its hope, all of which relate the Lord and His Supper unto us. In doing so, it will keep us from certain abuses, as the Lord adds His blessing, but it will also shepherd us to the right enjoying of the spiritual benefits of the Lord's Supper. So consider then firstly its founding. When Paul gets word of the abuses that were taking place in Corinth, he doesn't say, now how am I going to fix this? How am I going to match wit for wit? How am I going to correct it with my insight and so on? It's rather a simple thing that he does. He says in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord, that which also I delivered unto you. Think of that for a moment. Paul doesn't invoke his apostolic authority in and of itself. He doesn't appeal to tradition. He doesn't appeal to this is the way it's always been done, and you've diverged from it. But he appeals to Christ, the King. In other words, the founding of the Lord's Supper is... Christ's founding of the Lord's Supper. It's His Supper. He's the one who has established it. He's the one who has ordained it. He's the one who governs it. And to turn to the right or to the left, to add or to detract from it, is to mess with Christ Himself. This is why, you know, people wonder at this, and it's used in some strange way when people understand and uh, they think about the Reformation and they're struck, understandably at first, to find out that the single doctrine that was most regularly debated was not justification by faith alone. It wasn't Protestantism in general and Catholicism in general. It was the Lord's Supper. This is true Protestants versus Roman Catholics as well as Protestants within Protestant discussions. The volumes printed for the Lord's Supper outnumber all other topics in their time of the Reformation. And then the generation today puzzles at that and says, why would there be such concern about the Lord's Supper? 
Because after all, we live in the world of drive-through Lord's suppers. We live in the world of prepackaged cups with wafers. You peel the top, you pop it in, you're done. We live in the world of little care about the Lord's Supper. They lived in a world where they took God's Word seriously and understood something of what was going on, that this is not the church's sacrament properly considered. This is the Lord's ordinance, which is our sacrament. Christ has ordained it. And He's not left it to us to add or remove from it. He's not left to us to adapt it to our own cultures and customs because it's not the church that founded it. It's Christ who founded it. So Paul appeals not to himself, but to the Lord. For I have received of the Lord what I have also delivered unto you. So in some sense, you can think of Paul this way. He's receiving something, a deposit from the Lord. And without adding to or taking away from it, he brings it to Corinth and he says, this is what the Lord has given to me. And so he doesn't take up, as some have tried to take up and say, well, it's a church ceremony, so we can add decor to it and decorations and symbolism and all these different things. He says, no, as I received it, I've delivered it. And there's more in the text itself when he says, look, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. (coughs) And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And the same thing he says of the cup. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Notice, he says, this do. What I've done, you're to do. What I've enacted, you're to observe. What I have set forth, you are to take up. The founding of the Lord's Supper is by Christ Himself. And so the only one who can adapt the Lord's Supper, the only one who can change the Lord's Supper, is Christ Himself. Now, brethren, this is also full of encouragement to realize as we begin to enter into the riches of what is provided to us, to have this on the fore of our thoughts, that these riches and benefits and blessings are intended from Christ Himself. They aren't manufactured from our wants and needs and saying, oh, I wish that such were the case. It's Christ commissioning for our good by His own wisdom and way, that which we consider. By realizing that Christ is the founder of the Lord's Supper, it not only prevents us, as God would add His blessing, from messing with it, abusing it, tempering, tampering with it, but it also allows us to see so clearly that all of the blessings which are bound up in the Lord's Supper are blessings He intended to provide. This is why we strive as much as we're able to keep as close to the institution of the Lord's Supper as possible. Because we want Christ's blessings. All that He intends. All that He holds forth. And Christ's blessings are given to us by them. Notice as well in its founding that it is founded for the church as the church. In other words, it's not founded for the apostles, though they were among the first to receive it but it is founded for the church. This do ye 
as oft as ye eat it, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. And then we see as well, verse 26, as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. So in other words, the Lord's Supper is not a temporary sacrament in the sense of merely for the apostles. It's not like a temporary sign gift that the apostles had in speaking in tongues and prophesying and miraculous works. It is an established ordinance for the church from the resurrection to the return of Christ to be observed in all ages for all His people. Which means, of course, that we can say Christ had His thoughts on us when He instituted this supper. So in other words, Christ sees our needs, not just the immediate needs of His apostles at that time of the institution, but likewise the needs of all of His people in all ages. But He sees our needs and says, this is what you need. Now, when we are young and immature, we think to ourselves, oh, what I need is a sign from heaven. What I need is that God would meet me in this way. And we like to determine in our own imaginations what we think God would do if He were wise and good and benefit our souls. But as we grow and mature, we realize that we're the foolish one. God is the wise one. And so the simplicity of this meal is actually what we need. If we struggle with assurance, this is what we need. It's founded by Christ for it. If we struggle with spiritual uh, uh, malnourishment, this is what we need for He nourishes us with Himself. If we're struggling with peace of conscience as a believer, here is what we need. This meal is ordained of Christ, founded by Christ for His people in all ages. He doesn't say, you know, as customs change, change it up. He says, this is what's to be done in remembrance of me. And so with simplicity, we come to that meal founded by Christ to receive His wise provision for us. Which leads us secondly to consider what that provision is. So its founder is Christ. In simple ways, we can say its provision is Christ. He founds a sacrament by which He provides Himself. We see this in the text, in the simplicity, and no one disagrees with this because the language is so plain. Take, eat, this is My body, which is broken for you, verse 24. Verse 25, this cup is the New Testament in My blood, and so on. No one disagrees of the intimate relationship between the Lord's Supper and Christ's death. There is obvious disagreement in the way in which there are benefits to be received, but everyone acknowledges this because to avoid it is to reject the very basic understanding of the text. But notice, in its simple way, it's holding forth Christ to us. Now we'll go further in a moment, but let's not miss this. Whatever else we're going to say, and whatever else the Scriptures hold forth, the Lord's Supper is holding forth the remembrance of Christ for us. The meal is simple in its focus. Now this doesn't mean that there aren't myriads of things that might particularly capture our attention at the administration of the Lord's Supper. But whatever those myriad things are, they must be focused and related to Christ Himself. And so our minds are feeble and weak and 
We can't take in all that's before us any time. We can't look at a room and instantly say, here are all the colors I see. We have to go through it and look and determine what are the colors that are in this room. Similarly, though there is infinitely more that we can understand bound up in the Lord's Supper, yet our minds have to focus and think about this thing and that thing. But all of it will be related in some way or another to Christ's death. We can break it out in this way. We can say, in one way it provides us Christ by reminding us of Christ for us. And so he says, this is my body. Notice this language so beautiful in its simplicity, which is broken for you. Language for you speaks of many things preeminently of substitution. That I stood in your place. My body's broken in place of your body being broken. My blood was spilled in place of your blood being spilled. I for you. I in your place. It's a sign that points us again to Christ's death for us. Now brethren, think of this for a moment. If we were to make up sacraments according to the natural sort of developments that many Christians go through, we would think of the sacrament as something that would develop over time. Because our lives often come to faith in Christ and then we think, what's the new thing I need to learn? What about this doctrine, that principle, and so on? And we'd be inventing sacraments that think to take us to a higher thing than Christ for us. But what Christ is saying is, what you fundamentally need, regular reminder of, regular returning to, regular feeding upon, is that I died for you. Isn't it amazing how in our own experience, even as believers, we regularly slip away and depart from that through various interests and curiosities. We take up a new doctrine, a new principle that's new to us, and we start to read in it. But gradually, because we're not watchful over our souls, we drift from Christ's death for us. It's no wonder that we find ourselves in a place having grown intellectually and yet our souls in many ways have shriveled. It's no wonder that we're exposed then to all manner of doubts and anxieties and fears because though we must press on to grow in our doctrinal knowledge of all that the Scriptures make known, church government, purity of worship, relationship of church and state, all of these things are right to grow in and must be grown in because we are called to grow and take the whole of God's Word into our understanding as He would give us help. Yet it's not as if we go from grade 1 to grade 2, grade 1 being Christ crucified for us, and move on to other things and sort of leave largely grade 1 behind. Rather, it's that we're to take Christ crucified for us through all of our studies, through all of our growth, through all of our maturing, it must be central to our lives. The Lord's Supper provides us that needed reminder. It's no wonder that communion seasons are special seasons for the Christian. It's not because of superstition. It's because of the simplicity and the plainness with which Christ crucified is held forth to us. It's because our souls are being, as it were, saturated with this most necessary knowledge. 
Christ died for me. This is why there have been great revivals that have broken out surrounding the Lord's Supper, the Kirk of Shots and others included. Great blessings. Why? Not because the sacrament is a converting ordinance, but because the preaching around the sacrament is so full of Christ crucified. That's what is being blessed and owned. And fundamentally, that's what's held forth to us in the Lord's Supper. It provides us the reminder of Christ for us. Let's be clear. It's not Christ crucified again for us. It's Christ crucified for us again remembered. This do in remembrance of me. There's no new sacrifice. It is appointed for man once to die and then come judgment. And we read that Christ once died, once offered up Himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine judgment and reconcile us to God. But the sacrament redirects our attention to Him who so died for us. So that as we come examining ourselves, as Paul goes on to say, and we discover sins and imperfections and areas of growth, and we're tempted to think, I need to fix this somehow. The sacrament comes to us and says, here is your salvation. It's Christ for you. And what a blessed thing that it's nothing we bring with us to the table. We don't bring our own Lord's Supper with us. We don't carry our own bread and our own wine with us. We don't pull it out of our pocket or backpack or briefcase. It's there, situate at the Lord's table. And it's provided to us. Empty hands taking, empty mouths receiving, testifying of Christ being given freely to us. And so it reminds us of Christ's death, which has satisfied that divine justice and divine wrath The Lord's Supper provides us a much-needed reminder of this precious truth. But it also provides us Christ to nourish us. This is implicit in the very fact that He chose a meal. Children, you know this. In the summertime, it's hard to think of right now, it'll be hot. You'll be sweating outside. You'll be running around. And it'll strike you eventually, I am thirsty Or, I am hungry. Now, with all of your politeness, you walk inside and you ask your mom, you know, what's for lunch? What's for dinner? Because you're hungry. You want to eat. And you eat food and you find that your hunger passes. You drink and your thirst is quenched. It's because your body is being nourished by the food. The means being used are strengthening your exhausted body. What's interesting in the Lord's Supper is that he doesn't just say, look at the bread, broken. Look at the cup filled with wine. He breaks the bread, and what does he do? He passes it and says, take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. He takes the cup, and he blesses it, and he says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. And so there's a lot going on in this, but we can simply note that as meals nourish our bodies physically, so this spiritual meal is to nourish our souls spiritually. Now, there's a sign, the broken bread and the 
wine in the cup. And he's saying there's a link here between the sign and the thing signified. But you'll notice that we're not just to see the sign and then take the bread and pass it along and then close our eyes and use our reason to think it through. We're actually to look at the bread, take it, and eat it. Bring it into our being, as it were. We're to take the cup and not just smell it, look at it, and so on, but we're to drink it, taking it into our being. What's being said is this. This is my body. You must eat it. You must drink it. It must become your nourishment. Now this is not Christ for us, though that's included in the Lord's Supper. It's Christ in us. It is a communing meal. Paul has already implied this at the very least, having said in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? In other words, by this sign embraced by faith, we actually share in Christ. We share in the benefits of Christ. We share in the fellowship of Christ. We hold fellowship with the unseen Christ. There's no new sacrifice. There is not the literal eating of His body and the literal drinking of His blood with our bodies. But there is the real partaking of Christ. We see this in other ways expressed by Christ Himself, though not speaking directly of the Lord's Supper. You can see the overlap in John chapter 6 and at verse 51. When He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now this scandalizes the Jews. You'll notice it says in the next verse, the Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You can understand they're struggling with the statement, much like we would struggle with it. They're thinking, is he going to cut off part of his body and say, eat that? But Christ doesn't relent. He says, verily, verily, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. Now as difficult as that text is, it actually helps us understand the point. Because this is before the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so he's saying there is a way of eating my flesh and drinking my blood even before the Lord's Supper. Now what is that way? Well, he goes on to explain this to some extent when he says, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, verse 63, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. If you go back earlier in the chapter, verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. So what is to take place? In the Lord's Supper, there is the taking of the bread and eating of it. There's the taking of the cup and drinking of it. And yet, to partake of Christ, to fellowship with Christ, there must be the exercise of faith whereby we're taking Christ and saying, just as I take this bread 
and eat it. Just as I take this cup and drink it, so I now take Christ unto Myself and say with wonder, He is Mine. He is Mine. And it's this which the Christian struggles to explain, but knows by experience it is this which nourishes his or her soul. It's not, in other words, the physical eating and drinking, though it's not as it were to make that little. It's as we're eating and drinking the appointed bread and the appointed wine in accordance to Christ's ordinance, and as we eat and drink in faith, that we actually are receiving Christ. All of what He is is freshly, as it were, brought to us. All of His benefits are there assured to us. The bride in Song of Solomon says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. You think of this for a moment. Kisses are overly sexual today. There's nothing there of that right now. But we also know the what can we say, innocent form of kissing, of a mother kissing her child, of a father kissing his son. In other cultures where it's customary to kiss the cheek, the kiss is an intimate sign of friendship and love. What the bride is saying in Song of Solomon is not some erotic expression, but rather an intimate expression of wanting to know the love of Christ drawn near so that I can feel it. And it's strange that the Reformed have turned into this denomination or group of denominations which stands opposed to feelings. Because when you read Calvin, you read Rutherford, and you read others, you see men who were unafraid to speak of feelings and affections. And they desired Christ not only to know Him truly according to the teachings of the Scriptures, but that true Christ known to be truly experienced, felt, and enjoyed. This is what the Lord's Supper affords the Christian. It is, if we can say it this way, the kisses of His mouth. It's His not only saying, I love you, but it's coming near with His lips upon our cheek and showing it. This is the privilege of the Lord's Supper. It's His welcoming us into His intimate fellowship to say, I am really yours, and you are really mine. This is the scandal of Judas, as we'll get to as the Lord gives us opportunity, that when he comes to betray Christ, he identifies Christ with a kiss. The sign that's to be a sign of friendship is actually the sign whereby he betrays Christ. That which was supposed to be a sign of intimacy is actually the sign of rejection. But the Lord's Supper is no such false sign. It is Christ coming to us with sincerity and saying, here is the sign of my love for you. Here I am giving myself to you. Take me unto yourself. And though you can't explain it to the world, and the world would mock and look and ridicule these things and say there's no ceremony, there's no regalia, there's no wonder and adornment. We'd rather go to the Roman Catholic Church. We'd rather go to the High Church of Anglicans and others and have all of this outward spectacle. We get it. Because carnal men want carnal things. 
But here's the beauty of what Christ has commissioned for us. He's not interested in the outward spectacle. He wants us to know the reality and sincerity of His love. He doesn't come with all of the prostitutes, decor of flamboyant makeup, but with the chaste approach of a truly beloved spouse. And so it is for us to come in the simplicity of His most beautiful love expressed to us and to receive the same to our soul's nourishment because Christ provides Himself freshly in His love and peace to nourish and strengthen our souls. But notice the Lord's Supper as much as we anticipate and long for its administration, is not an end in itself. It is, of course, a means of grace, and so it's a means for us to enjoy Christ in that season. But it's also a means of grace to support us through this life. And so Paul comes to the end of this passage as we have it before us, and he testifies of this very point when he says to us that this is given to us, that we may what? Well, that we may declare His death until He come. So you'll see that in verse 26. As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till He come. Now, of course, there is a way in which He spiritually comes to us in the Lord's Supper. He comes to us in the preaching of His Word. The preaching of His Word is His voice unto us. In the Lord's Supper, He embraces us and testifies of His love more intimately, more powerfully. And yet, brethren, as much as we have enjoyed such privileged option, uh, moments at the Lord's table, the Lord's table pales in comparison with that which we long for in its fullness when He Himself shall come. It was interestingly pointed out in recent times in a private conversation in thinking about the way in which Christ comforts His people. And so in John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse uh, 10, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and then he hears the voice of Christ. And later it says he turns and he sees the glorious spectacle of Christ in His glorified state. And he falls at his feet as dead. And then it says that Christ put his hand upon John. It says, fear not. Tells us as well in other passages that Christ will wipe the tears from our eyes. It doesn't say that he simply causes them to stop. But there's a tangible process of wiping them. There's a physicality to our being. Though we are spirits, we are embodied spirits. And it's not the spiritual state of a disembodied soul that is our great hope. Now, of course, it is better than what we have now. And every believer that dies enters into a better state than they presently are in because they're liberated from the bondage of this broken body and this miserable world, and their souls are perfected in holiness and brought into the spectacle of the beatific vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, they await their resurrection. 
Now notice what Paul says again. He doesn't say, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till you die, or till your soul goes to heaven, but until he come, until Christ, who has been made known to us by his word and the spiritual kisses and embraces of the sacrament, his upholding of us spiritually all our days in ways that surpass our understanding, will finally, in glory, show himself. In Song of Solomon, we hear of seeing him through the lattice. Now, children, you think of the lattice, which is some piece of furniture. We can think of it that way, of like a wall where there are strips that go vertically and horizontally but allow you to see through a little bit. <clears throat> and in this life, it's as if Christ is showing Himself through the lattice. You can get a little bit of what He is. You see Him truly, but not fully. That's what this life is like now. But on the last day, it's as if He flings the door open and He comes rushing through and He displays Himself in perfection. In other words, the hope of the Lord's Supper is an expectation of consummation when Christ returns and receives us as His bride. Now, we are His bride, are we not? But isn't it telling that the parable that Christ chooses is a parable of those ten virgins awaiting the wedding feast? And Paul speaks of the church as a bride adorned for her husband. That though we can speak rightly of our souls being wed to Christ, yet we have to realize that we're awaiting the full enjoyment of that spiritual marriage when it is that Christ returns. And so the Lord's Supper is a way of His sustaining of us, keeping up that expectation, keeping up our love to Him, and being assured of His love to us until He comes and takes us to Himself. So much in these simple words that go beyond what we're able to consider this afternoon. But what we do see is that the Lord's Supper in all of its simplicity, because it holds forth Christ for us and conveys Christ in us, also gives us the hope of Christ in glory. Every meal in its simple administration and its receiving in faith is to assure us that He who is gone and now sustains us spiritually by these means, will come again and truly be known by us in glory. And so this simple meal holds forth the hope of the inexpressible glory of Christ's return. Brethren, you'll see a connection between this afternoon and this morning because the Christian is a people, a person who is looking Unto what? The glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And what does the Lord's Supper sustain in us? But a looking and expecting and a longing for that glorious appearing of the glorious and great God in our Savior Jesus Christ. Believer, here is mercy provided to you, not by the church, not by a wise counsel, but by Christ Himself. He sees our needs. He knows our frame. 
And so He provides and affords to us this blessed meal, which needs no artificial adornment. It needs no improvement. It needs no consideration of cultural and scientific understandings of germ theory. It simply needs to receive what Christ has ordained. Because in that, we have Christ coming to us, conveying to us the assurance that He suffered and has paid for our debt, and likewise conveying to us the communion with Him that we may enjoy Him at the table, the intimate embrace of His love. Here is a mercy indeed. When you hear other Christians go on about their high church observances, you'll understand now why it is deep within you grieve. Because they've misplaced the simplicity of spiritual intimacy with the outward earthly adornments which add nothing to the riches we have in Christ. The Lord's Supper is the perfect provision of Christ to the soul for our good. Here is something then that you are to treasure and prioritize. It is that you are to treasure and prioritize this ordinance. That you are to be willing to die that it be not corrupted. Young people, there is a day coming when everyone who is older than you will be dead. When pastors and elders of our own presbytery will no longer be waging war in this life. And the lot will have passed into your lap. And it will be incumbent upon you, for you have heard the Word of God, to stand for the pure administration of Christ's ordinance. Someone might say, well, I'm not a minister. I might not be a minister. I might not be an elder. Well, no different. Because women have a role. Children have a role. Unordained men have a role to appeal that Christ's ordinances be purely administered and purely observed because of our gracious love to our gracious Savior. And so it is necessary that you learn these principles and yet learn them as learning Christ. Because what we'll start to see is we become more zealous for the right administration of the ordinances Because we're more zealous for Christ. We long for Him to be known. We long for Him to be received. And so we would add not and we would take not away from His ordinance. It also means we prioritize this ordinance and sacrament in our own observance. In our local congregations, we're mindful of the schedule. And we say, we're having the Lord's Supper. So apart from illness, I'm there. I'm seeking the Lord and His Supper. This is what He has for our congregation. I'm there. Apart from some unforeseen thing, I schedule everything around it because this is the Lord's Supper for our people, for this congregation, and so on. Surely there will be providential matters that arise and take us away through necessary travel and emergencies and other such things. But the reason we prioritize it is both because of Christ instituting local churches and the local observances of this, but preeminently because we love Christ. I want Christ and more of Him. And this is why we prioritize the same. But if we're to benefit from it, 
It must be that we make a right use of it, which is not merely by outwardly participating, clearing our schedules, okay, preparatory service, Saturday, check, I'm off work, I'll be there, and the communion service on Sunday morning, I'll be there. But it is that we are preparing ourselves by doing a couple of things. We're cultivating a hunger, as Paul will go on to testify of examining ourselves, searching out, as the psalmist testifies, Lord, search me and try me, know my thoughts, know if, see if there be any wicked way in me, lead me in the way everlasting. And so there is a seeking of what's in us and what's lacking in us. But it's not so that we can fix it. It's that we come and we become sensitive to our own appetite that Christ may satisfy it. We come, yes, saying, Lord, give me grace to repent. Bless that I would turn from this sin. But in order to do that, I need your strength. And whereas you give that by your word and by prayer and meditation, you also give that through the nourishing of the sacrament. And so to make right use of it, we cultivate the hunger. We appeal to God for his help. And we believingly receive the provision of Christ that is provided to us. And so if we are to benefit from this, we come with understanding, but we come with faith. We eye not our thoughts and feelings, we eye His Word. And we listen. The minister taking the bread, and in accordance to Christ's institution, Christ is speaking through the minister, this is my body which is broken for you. We hear Christ in that moment. And we take from Christ what Christ offers of Himself. Take, eat. This do in remembrance of Me. This cup is the New Testament in My blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of Me. And we say, though I am not worthy of Myself, yet Christ gives this to Me. And I take it from Christ. And so, brethren, come with faith. We'll have service of prayer on Wednesday and Territory service on Saturday. You'll have your own time as families and individuals to prepare. But whatever else you do, come to seek the Lord both at and in His supper and to do so by faith that your own soul would be well nourished, strengthened, and brought to glory in Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?